0: All right, just to uh, get started this morning, um, for those of you that are aware, we've been walking through the book of Revelation, and we're probably a couple of weeks into it. uh, We're going to continue, and I won't do a a full review, uh, but I will tell you this, that uh, for those of you that have missed it, we we, we started by saying that this book is, uh, yes, it's controversial, but it's also a book that Jesus Christ came down, appeared to John the Apostle, and said, take a memo, and give this letter to the churches. And it was originally given to uh, seven churches in seven cities, and uh, from those seven churches in those seven cities, it went to all of Jesus' followers. So uh, if Jesus Christ comes down and says, take a memo, it's probably a book that we should engage in reading. So we've been walking through it, and um, I'll also tell you this, that it's not just a book of doom and gloom and all that kind of stuff like most people think. It, it does talk about uh, things that are we call end times, but it's actually a transition from not the end of all things, but the beginning of eternity. So definitely worth us digging into. It's also probably, and you guys have heard this term before, it's one of the greatest love stories ever. Uh, you may read this book, and most people focus on you know planets and You know asteroids and all this stuff that's going on and explosions and volcanoes, and they're like, ah, but when you read it, and hopefully we've done a good job of pointing out uh, that it's all about how much God loves us, and actually, it is is like, uh, I think I said, it's a supernatural chick flick on steroids, because it is all about God's love for us. Now, here's the thing, guys, I need you to just, if you can just bear with me, just don't tune out, but just bear with me for a few minutes, but uh, ladies, um, if I'm stereotyping, forgive me, but you guys are know, you're familiar with, there's lots of what we would call classic chick flicks. Well, you don't call them chick flicks, but we do behind your back. But there's lots of classic chick flicks out there, all right? So uh, I'm going to walk through just a couple that I want to share with you. How many of you guys remember, uh, anyone see Officer and a Gentleman? Okay. Guys, we don't think it's a chick flick because it's a Navy and it's boot camp and it's all, huh. it's chick flick. Okay. All about the guy, and, and and yeah, he's getting into the Navy and boot camp and his career, but the love story. And and the, 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 the thing about the love story is whether or not uh, Richard Gere, and I forget the guy's name, but Richard Gere, once he graduates, is going to move on into his career with the girl he loves, or if he's going to ditch her for his career. And if you don't know the end of the story, I'm going to spoil it for you. He takes her with him, and if you think about it, when it comes to Jesus Christ, okay, the the book of Revelation is about the movement God's sharing with us, the movement into eternity, and it's all about him not willing for any of us to spend eternity without him. His desire is to take all of us with him into eternity so that we can spend the rest of eternity with him. Now, another chick flick, Pretty Woman, how many of you guys are, people have seen this? Guys, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, if you did, it was probably because she wanted to see it. That's our story. We're sticking to it. But uh, Pretty women, and, and you guys know, this is a story about uh, um, Julia Roberts, prostitute, and then Richie Gere, rich businessman. And basically, he comes from, you know, there's this, this class distinction of his life, her life. He comes from his life way up here, you know, rich and the powerful businessman, and brings her from her life, low on the streets prostitute, into his world. And, and if you, what we've been talking about in Revelation is how God has from, uh, we get this glimpse of everything that's going on in heaven, but God doesn't forget about us and what's going on on earth. His desire is not that we are separate from Him down here dealing with our stuff. His desire is to come and have us lift us up from our situation so that we can eternally be with Him. Uh, another one, really quick, and this one defies understanding. Legally Blonde. How many guys? How many people have seen this? Okay, this one defies understanding. Let me tell you why. There was the movie Legally Blonde. There was Legally Blonde Two. Okay, then there was Legally Blonde the Musical. I'm not making this up. Then there was Legally Blonde's, the spinoff. No idea why this was so popular, but it, it's basically about uh, Legally Blonde, the woman who's a lawyer, or not a lawyer, she's a supposedly just not smart woman. I'm going to keep it at that because I don't want to offend anybody, all right? Not smart woman, good looking, all that stuff, and everyone believes that she does not belong in this world of professional lawyers and they they don't think she has what it takes and pretty much she falls in love with a guy who says you know what I believe you have what it takes and I believe in you and I love you despite what other people say about you or what other people think about you and if any of you have been any time in a relationship with Jesus Christ you know that he loves us Despite what other people say about us, despite what other people think about us, despite how other people might look at us and put us into this, this, this class or this box that says that we can only do so much or we can only achieve so much. He says, I love you anyway. And, and, and this last one, um, let me share this with you. This is the last one. Uh, how many guys remember this? Pride and Prejudice. Anyone see this? Anyone read the book? I forget the author's name. Anyone know her name? What? Jane Austen, there you go, there you go. Jane Austen, classic book. Uh, the movie, totally uh, a great movie, not to be confused with the Bollywood, which is the Indian version, called Bride and Prejudice. Basically, this I have this one at home. Awesome. Yeah, I love musicals. It's a musical. They do some great dancing and all this stuff, but the story is, is, is still the same. Both are about preconceived notions and prejudices that keep people from getting uh, 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 into the relationships, or falling in love, and I love him and he loves me, but we can't, we're different classes, or you're only after marriage, or all this stuff, all these preconceived notions that we bring into our relationships that prevent us from experiencing true love, yet in these stories, they kind of overcome that. And the same thing, when we look at the book of Revelation, it's, it's this massive love story, and we have all these Preconceived notions about what the book is about. It's about, you know, destruction and it's about God putting a smack down on humans and all of this stuff when it's not. If you rip away all of those preconceived notions we have, the book is about God pretty much shaking the foundations of the universe to show us and tell us how much He loves us. And if if if, if you remember, we left off uh, with um, God pretty much raising up. 144,000 followers, uh, uh, from Jewish followers of his, to go out and evangelize the world. Not to go out and destroy the world, but to go out and to tell the entire globe, here is how much God loves you. And uh, if you don't remember, it was in um, Revelation chapter 7. Then one of the elders asked me, this is John recording what he experienced in heaven. One of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. So apparently, whatever these 144,000 were doing, it was working. God recruited, sealed on their forehead with his name, and he sealed them as his followers, sent them out into this time that's called the great tribulation, sent them out to go tell people how much God loves you, And as a result, this is what John sees. These people who get saved, who become followers of Jesus Christ during this tribulation period. And it says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Now, the indication is that these are people who have, during during this tribulation period... They, they've become washed their robes or in, in his, uh, blah, blah, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. During this tribulation period, they have become followers of Jesus Christ. So they're uh, don't know what you guys have heard, and I said throughout this thing, I'm not pushing one theology of another. We're going to let Scripture be our guide, and then what we're unsure of, we can go back and ask God. But it appears that during this tribulation period, those people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, that it begins to work. They begin to acknowledge and know who he is. And they become followers of Jesus Christ. And when they die or are martyred, they get to spend an eternity with him. All right? Now, um, if you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to continue in our series. uh, Open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. And we're going to continue walking through um, this classic supernatural chick flick on steroids. And in Revelation chapter eight, I'm going to start off at verse one. Verse one: When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, for those of you that know, um, there was these seals. There were these seals that were being opened. Okay, and as each seal was opened, there was a scroll, and Jesus Christ was this, He was unveiling, which Revelation that's what literally means the unveiling, God revealing His will to us. As this scroll was being unveiled. Each seal was opened and I believe, this is what it appears to be, that as it was opened there were instructions that were read and were directions that were given so spiritually as each seal was opened a part of the scroll was read or revealed and then something would happen and we walked through um, all of them uh, last week and now we get to the seventh one and there was this silence in heaven. Now here's the thing many of us are, are are used to, you know, the noises we hear at work and there's so much sound saturation that if we were in a place of absolute silence it would probably make us a little bit uncomfortable. Even if we were to just sit here silently, the sounds of the fans or the air conditioner, there's always some sound. But here in heaven there was this period of absolute Silence, and some theologians say that the silence because it was the, there was silence because it was the calm before the storm, knowing what would come next. some people say that it was just and, and this is what I lean to this is just my floyd 's personal opinion that it was silence out of just reverence for God because a lot of times what happens is we get uh, so caught up in in doing stuff for God, like even the the do something I was talking with the uh, Rachel, we were talking about the list of upcoming events and things that we have planned. And, and we both said, you know what, we've got a lot going on. We've, there's a lot, I mean, for a church as small as we are, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing and that we're involved in. But sometimes, God doesn't want us to do anything. He just wants us. And every now and then, it's okay. So this is what typically we, since I've been here, this is what we've been doing every August, Uh, We don't do Sunday school in August. We don't do uh, 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 any of the small groups. We just kind of stop everything. We still do the Sunday morning services with the children's ministry and stuff on Sunday. But throughout the week, we kind of put all that stuff on hold and just tell everyone to go use that time to spend some time with God. Now, there are churches that take the whole summer off. They just stop everything the whole summer, and all they do is Sunday morning services. We're still going to have the uh, uh, VBS there's still people getting together and planning for that. Uh, we're still going to have our uh, uh, worship team, you know, gatherings and, and plan for that. But all the small groups and Sunday school that happens something more. all the other ministries, we're kind of putting all those on hold for the month of August, starting in August, so that, one, just to give people a break, but two, just so that people can use that time to focus on God. Because sometimes we, not just us, we, the church, people in general, get so caught up trying to do stuff that we miss the point of just being with God. Here's um, here's a verse I want to share with you. Amos, who was a a prophet in the Old Testament, this is what God said to him. Now, the version, normally I read you guys stuff out of NIV, King James, Amplified, NASB. This is the version out of the message. How many of you guys have heard of that or read through the message? Okay, it's not an actual translation, so to speak, like the New International Version or the NIV. It is basically a paraphrase. Basically, someone saying... Reading like the NIV or something and saying, This is what God says. But it, it's very impactful because here's what uh, it says. This is what Amos, uh, God spoke to him and said, Tell the people of Israel. He said, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and your conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Sometimes we get so caught up on trying to do all these church programs and church activities that we lose sight of just kind of being with God. And actually it was uh, Pat, I think, that... uh, uh, Exposed this song to me by, I forget the name of the artist that, uh, who sings that, that God wants a hallelujah sometimes? Amy Grant. Awesome song because it it basically says that, you know what, sometimes us just crying out and acknowledging God is more impactful to God than us standing here raising our arms saying hallelujah, 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 just acknowledging his presence. But moving on. um, Drop down. Verse two, and I saw. This is John again, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, uh, here's the thing: we talked a little bit about the seven angels before, okay? And we said that uh, depending upon you know your interpretation, that it could be that those are seven actual angels, it could be seven spiritual beings. Um, Luke, however, records this in Luke chapter one, verse eighteen to nineteen: the father of John the Baptist. When he was in the temple before he became mute, uh, Zachariah, appear, uh, Zachariah, that's his name, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that you're going to have a son, John the Baptist, and he's going to go and prepare the way for the Lord. But Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news now. To us, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but when you look throughout all the scripture, it appears that there are. Now, here's the thing. Scripture only gives us the name of two angels. It tells us there's Gabriel. The only other angel it mentions is Michael, and it says Michael is an archangel. Here's the thing, though. We know there are a lot more angels than that. We read a couple of weeks ago about the the, the 10,000 times 10,000 that John saw worshiping God in heaven. If you look through other writings through some of the old Jewish writings, and through some of the writings there, that are not considered inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they're out there, uh, this is what they say. They say that um, there are seven actual angels who have different functions. These are the names of the angels who watch. This is from the book, uh, book called First Enoch, and it's one of the books that uh, most Protestant Christians do not say is divinely inspired by God, but there are some people out there who say, yes, it is. Again, you can go back and uh, spend time in prayer. I'm not going to get into that debate right now. But it says, these are the names of the angels who watch. Uriel, one of the holy angels who presides over clamor and terror. Raphael, not the turtle, one of the holy angels who presides. That was funny. Come on. Are we here this morning? All right. Do you know who the ninja t- now, Anyway, Raphael, one of the holy angels who presides over the spirits of men. Raguel, one of the holy angels who inflicts punishment on the world and the luminaries. Michael, one of the holy angels who, presiding over human virtue, commands the nations. Sarakiel, one of the holy angels who presides over the spirits of the children of men that transgress. Gabriel, one of the holy angels who presides over Ikizat, over paradise, and over the cherubim. Now, there's a lot of this that just theologically, just that mm, kind of presses against and conflicts with what we would call biblical scripture, which is why many people don't acknowledge it. But I'm just sharing this with you so you know that there are other people out there who believe that, you know, there are these seven powerful angels that are all God's commanding angels, so to speak, right? But drop down to verse 3. In verse 3, he goes on, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, ramblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And we talked a little bit a couple of weeks ago about whenever there's that uh, thunder and lightning and all that stuff, it's usually an indication of God's presence and him about to reveal something. But here's the thing. The angel that's there, it says there's another angel. Some people believe that that angel is Jesus Christ because what they're about to reveal in these trumpets uh, are judgment, God judging the planet. So some people say this is Jesus Christ. Some people say it is just another angel because the word they choose for another indicates another of the same kind. So it would be classifying this angel as just like the other angels that John has been referencing which Jesus Christ we know is not. The whole book of Hebrews talks about the fact that he is so far superior to the angels. So again, it's not a big distinction. Those who think it is Jesus Christ, okay. Those who think it is not, okay. Nothing to divide over, uh, just something that we can go back and say, God, revealed who this is to us. Now, whoever the angel is, he literally hands the prayers of the saints to God. Now, this is amazing because a lot of people think Prayer doesn't work. Anyone ever heard that before? Why pray, prayer doesn't work? Okay. A lot of people ask that. Why pray? Prayer doesn't work. Or, why pray? God already knows what we're thinking. Why do we need to pray? Here's the thing. When we, the, the incense in the Old Testament, without going into a big thing about that, represents, was like a shadow or a type of, and they talk about it here, the prayers of the saints going up to God. And what we read here is, it, it's almost like, it's it's better than a hot phone, okay? It's almost like a direct UPS hand delivery of what's on your heart to God's hand because it says the angel literally hands the prayers to God. When we cry out, when we are dealing with stuff, just when we want to praise God and we we seek his face in prayer, it is it is it's it's even better than 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 thinking, I know God hears my prayer which scripture already tells us, that we should be confident in knowing that it hears our prayers, it's even better to know that somebody is coming down, walking up to the hand of God and saying, it's Floyd again, he's got something to tell you. And I know that he's going to read it and see it, and he's going to take action, maybe it may be an action I don't want, on my prayers. But again, uh, moving on, the trumpets are believed to be, we're about to read where all these trumpets are about to be blown, and there's going to be, Uh, things that occur that this is where the gloom and doom comes from in the book of Revelation. Because there's about to be a lot of, it would make a good movie, stuff going on, right? But these are believed to be uh, judgments, and the first four affect nature directly, and then the next three affect people directly, and all of them pretty much line up with, uh, if you guys have read Matthew 24, I won't, Turned there because of time, but how many of you guys remember, uh, you know, the Charlton Heston version of Ten Commandments, Old Testament, all that? Excellent movie, and uh, every redo since then has just not measured up at all. I mean, am I right? Have you guys seen any of the redoes? The animated one, wholly different class by itself because it's animated. But uh, in any case, in this in this movie, you see all these plagues that are coming down, and a lot of people believe that these plagues. Kind of are representations of the same plagues that God unleashed on Egypt. And both of them, they, they, they kind of match up in why God did it. Because uh, here's the thing. When he did it to Egypt in the Old Testament, he was directing the plagues not at the Egyptians. He was directing it at the things that they worshipped, their idols. And I don't know how many of you guys were here, like, I don't know how long this was ago, months ago, when we walked through uh, the Ten Commandments and we looked at, and you guys, I give you guys a chart, it's probably under your car seat if you go check, this chart of showing all the Ten Commandments and how they correlate to which specific gods in Egypt that God was kind of directing those plagues at. And um, the first thing that he did was he did the Nile turning to blood. But his whole goal was to take what they worshipped, And to show them that this thing that you worship, this thing that from the Egyptians, this thing, they worship the Nile, they worship the weather. He was showing them that these things that you worship are pretty much subject to me. So you're worshiping something that is lesser than when you could be worshiping someone who is more than. And he literally, item by item, went through and attacked the things that they worship. Now, um, the object of the worship, for them, was these idols, these things, but for him, uh, in the book of Exodus, here's here's the key thing, why he did it. In the book of Exodus, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. He says, let my people go, so that they may worship me, or this time... That's key. This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. The reason that he did it wasn't because he was issuing, all right, time for a little smackdown on the Egyptians. The reason that he did it is so that they would know that these idols are false, but the sovereign God of the universe is real. And it goes on to say, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It wasn't an angry thing. It wasn't a rebellion thing. It wasn't... Uh, The only reason that he did it was so that people would know that God exists. And this is the same thing we see in Revelation. These things that we're about to read, these trumpets, are not about God trying to, you know, get even with anyone. It's really about God showing his mercy and his grace. And we're we're going to talk about that a little bit. Because here's what they did. They worshiped the Nile, and he turned it to blood. The thing that they worshipped, they had huge, that was almost their number one god that they worshipped was the Nile, because it fertilized the crops, it provided their water, it did everything. They worshipped the Nile, he turned it to blood. They worshipped beetles and scarabs, he gave them lice and locusts, they worshipped frogs, he found them in their beds. Do You guys remember the frogs came up out of the water, they were in their pots, they were in their homes, they were in their clothes, they were in their cars, all kind of stuff, and then they worshipped the weather, and he allowed the hail to come down and totally decimate their crops. Now, not saying that this is a fulfillment of scripture, not saying that this is necessarily that, but over the last few years, as a culture in a nation, we have begun or began to see the things that we worship being whittled away at, so to speak. Not saying that this is God, you know, judging the United States, but it's the things, one of those things that makes you go, hmm, because we are a culture that worships money and we are in the worst economic collapse that this nation has ever seen. And I know people are saying, well, the Great Depression was worse than the Great Depression, but if you look on, c- by comparison, the economic impact of what we have been going through and are still going through and will continue to go through for who knows how many years to come, is by far a greater impact than what the Great Depression did. Now, here's the other thing. We worship, we have people that, you know what? I I think we should be good conservative. We should be very conservative and take care of the planet that God has given to us. We should be good stewards of it. But we have people that worship the stars and the trees and the grass and all that stuff. And yet we have, in the last couple of years, seen this country, just in this country alone, natural disasters on a scale that we have not seen since the founding of this country. And we worship our bodies. We're all about you know, gym and fit this and fit that. And we've had, what, MRSA, swine flu, bird flu. AIDS is still out of control. And the thing that we rely on, health care, has gone to such a degree that it almost split this nation in half. All these things that we have put up on a pedestal that are slowly, little, being kind of whittled away. I won't dwell on that. I won't dwell on that. All right, so um, jump down to verse 6. And in verse 6, chapter 8, Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, here's what happens. There was this storm of hail and fire and blood and it destroys it destroys one-third of the earth trees and green grass okay one-third of the earth one-third of the earth's land mass is now unlivable so think about the population whatever it is think about one-third of the land mass now gone so where do they go to they go to the remaining two-thirds so in that one act we have almost instantly stepped out of, wow, you've heard people say the earth is near, we're getting close to overpopulation. In an instant, one act, we're there. Because the remaining survivors, where where else can you go? You have to go where there's land to live on. One-third of it is now gone. One-third of the trees and the green grass are gone. I'm not a scientist, but I know we need them to live. We can't breathe without them. So now the very air we breathe has been compromised or impacted as a result of this one act. And I know it's kind of mind-boggling for us to think about, but if you think about that's pretty harsh. One-third of the earth is gone. It's now uninhabitable. Uh, one-third of the trees and green grass are gone. Makes it difficult to breathe. Drop down to verse 8. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, think about this as well. We've already got, you know, it's it, atmospheric conditions have been impacted. Difficulty breathing. One third of the land on the earth. Not one third of the land in the United States. On the earth gone. Now we have one third of the sea turned into blood. One third of the sea life is gone. One third of the sea life is gone. One third of... The What we rely on, I don't know how many are into seafood, but we rely on that to eat. One third of that is gone. One third of the ships on the seas are gone, which means one third of our transport capability is now gone. All of that is impacted. This mountain that it talks about, some people believe it's like another asteroid or something like that. The word mountain literally means mountain. Personally, this is, again, Floyd, my personal opinion is, is that a mountain, because it says it was thrown, when we see all these other things about stars, it says he saw them fall or land. This says it was literally thrown. My opinion is that there was a spiritual or angelic being that literally ripped off a mountaintop and threw it. I don't see any other reason for John to say it was thrown. Literally, I believe it was God just like, ah, kicking it down. But, it was literally thrown into the now. When it hits, one third of our our now sea life and all that stuff is impacted. Uh, keep going. Drop on to verse ten. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch. And these are the things that we said. These are probably asteroids or. Uh, things that are coming from out of Earth's atmosphere coming into Earth's atmosphere. Uh, And a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky. And this is different. This fell. The mountain was thrown. Fell from the sky and on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Now, think about this. We had the sea life that was impacted. Ships that were impacted, now we have fresh water impacted. A third of our drinking water impacted. Now, I heard this on the internet, okay? So that means it's, okay? But someone said that of all the Earth's water, there's only about less than 5% of all the Earth's water that is actually fresh water. Again, heard it on the internet, don't know if it's true. Of that 5%, they said approximately 2%, is frozen frozen in glaciers. So we already have a limited, if that's true, we already have a limited drinking supply. And now, one third of that is gone. So now we have less of a limited drinking supply. Even if that's not true, uh, we have, even if it's not that small, whatever we do have, one third of it is now undrinkable, because it says when this thing hits, um, that the waters become bitter. It's possible that one uh, of three things happened. When this thing hit, that f- for however God does it, that he and you read this in the Old Testament where waters were made bitter. He supernaturally allows this thing to make the water bitter. Supernaturally. Another way it's possible if it is a uh, asteroid or comet that hits the Earth. It is totally possible that, and those things have methane and all ammonia and all kind of gases in them, that these waters become either radioactive, because the word bitter literally means bitter in the stomach, not just to taste. Radioactive, so they're undrinkable, or just plain poisonous, so they're undrinkable. Whatever the way that it's done, one third of our drinking water is now gone. Now, side note, again, this was on the internet, how many of you guys remember Chernobyl, 1986, heard of the Chernobyl nuclear thing? Russian word for Chernobyl is wormwood. Not saying that that is anyway any way a fulfillment of this scripture. Just Again, one of those things that makes you go, hmm, because all of the plant life and all of the water and everything that was impacted by that, undrinkable. All right, moving on, drop down to verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And, and, and here's what you have. One third of the light that we need at day is removed from our presence. And again, it's either supernaturally or it's either because of all of these things hitting the earth. And you guys, I told you about the, uh, the volcano in where was it? Iceland, Greenland, Iceland wherever those 12 people that live in that area are, whenever that hit, it sent up such a cloud of ash that for, I think it was like a week, a week and a half, planes couldn't fly. But if you imagine if asteroids and and mountains and all these kind of things are crashing onto the Earth. Now, if that's true, however it happens, either because of the ash and, and the atmospheric conditions, which has already been compromised because of one third of the plant life being gone, or if it's because of God just supernaturally striking those things. Whatever the case is, if that's true, then we begin to usher usher into an ice age. Because we lose one-third of our light, and with light comes heat. Not saying we're instantly going to be in that, but the atmospheric conditions are already compromised. Our food and our water are compromised. Now our light source, also heat source, we don't get heat necessarily from the moon, but from the sun, has been compromised. And so then as we begin to move forward in this progression, everything around us, now here's the thing. All of these things that we worship, the people that, you know, no offense, all the people that are into astrology and worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the people that are into worshiping the planet Earth and Mother Earth and all this stuff, God shows us little by little that these things are subject to him. And why worship something that is lesser than when you can worship God who is more than? All right, we're going to move on. Now, here's the, this is the interesting thing. Verse 13, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other angel. Now, for a minute, this might look like a like supernatural Disney thing, right? you got this eagle flying. Yelling out, woe is me, woe is me. I can't even begin to tell you what woe means in the Greek because I still don't know what it means in English. Does anyone have any? It's just like, yeah, it's just woe. I don't know. It's, it's just a, a proclamation of like grief and despair. And there's this bird that's flying around yelling, woe, woe, woe. Here's the thing some people believe that it's not actually a bird. And if you look uh, in your translation, depending upon which one you have, some say it's an angel because John previously described. And I forget what chapter it is. Early on in the book of Revelation, he described an angel with the face of an eagle. So some of the translators perceived, even though it uses the word eagle, perceived it uh, to be an angel, the angel that had the face of an eagle that was flying around, basically saying, woe is me, there's more to come. Uh, Jump on to verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9, as we begin to wrap this up. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, this is different, even though it uses the word star, because John is describing this other thing that comes down. He gives it a personality and describes it as more than just some asteroid or being. It's literally an angel. Uh, When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth, and were given power like that of scorpions upon the earth. (coughs) Excuse me. Were given power like that of scorpions upon the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months, and the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. And he describes what these locusts look like. He says the locusts look like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth were like lions' teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing in the battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had, as king over them. The angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. Really quick, because a lot of stuff there. Basically, he describes that this angel comes down, and he opens the abyss. And if uh, you read in other verses, it talks about what the abyss is. It's literally, the word abyss literally is, is translated bottomless pit. And it's this place where that was reserved, and some people believe it's in hell. Some people believe it's separate from hell. Some people believe it's in hell, but it's kind of like underneath hell. Like, this is worse worse than that. And it's a place reserved specifically for angels. And in Luke chapter 8, how many of you guys remember Jesus Christ? And he was uh, going over uh, across the sea, and he ran across this man that was possessed... And the man said, I'm he said, what is your name? He was speaking to the demon or demons that have possessed the man. And the, the demons responded, we are legion because we are many. And as Jesus has this conversation with them, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. And it's in 2 Peter, Peter, Peter talks about this place. Or actually in Revelation 9, 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not... Repent of the work in their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons in idols of gold, silver, bronze, wooden, blah, blah, stone, and wood idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, and their sexual immorality, or the theft. Actually, I jumped to this too fast. I'm missing a slide. But there is a slide from Second Peter where Jesus um, or Peter is talking about this place, and he says that God, if he has not, if this is what he says, if God has not spared angels when they sin from this place, in the uh, and sent them to the pit, and chained them there, then how will he spare, and he goes on to talk about all these other things, spare us, but he references that there is this place where angels have been chained and sealed, and typically, and this is where kind of islanding, typically what most people believe, some, some theologians believe is As it talks about this in Revelations, that he talks about this one-third and one-third and one-third, that that place, there are one-third of the angels that are sealed down there. What we see now, and again, a lot of people differ on this. Some people say this angel that comes down and unlocks the pit is Satan. I don't know that it is. I don't know that it's not. Some people believe it's just an angel, another angel, who God calls down to unlock the pit. Here's what happens. There are many people out there that worship spiritual things, demons and and all kind of ghosts and all this kind of stuff. So what God does is he unlocks this pit where demons, these angels that are no longer wanting to be under God's authority. He unlocks this pit and unleashes a demonic horde on the earth. And it's clear these aren't these aren't angels from heaven who God says go down and do these things. These are angels coming out of this pit, and it's in Second Peter. If you want to, I thought I had it up there. I apologize if you want to go back and read it, where he talks about that is where these angels. He has these angels chained and bound, and he uh, this other angel comes down, unlocks that pit, and lets these demonic forces loose on the earth for all of these people that say. I want to worship angels, I want to worship demons, I want to worship witchcraft, and into all these things. God says, you have no, he continually, throughout the entire Bible, he's telling them, you have no idea what you're messing with. You have no idea what you're asking for. And he tells the people of Israel, and he tells his followers, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's why he says, don't mess with witchcraft. And for all these people that say, but I want to, I believe there's such power there, he unleashes that power. And when it is unleashed, this demonic horde, is where it gets a little weird, comes out. And over them, there's this king whose name literally means destroyer in Greek and Hebrew. And what he unleashes are these things, these locust-like beings. Again, there are people who say, well, those aren't locusts. They're helicopters. I believe if they were helicopters, John would have used a bigger word to describe them than locusts because locusts are small. So they are, I believe, small creatures that he describes with weird hair, faces like men, Tales and all this stuff, and they go around torturing, torturing humanity. And here's where we get a little bit, because it says the only people that they do not harm are those who are sealed by God. Everyone else they torture for a period of five months. I have no idea why the uh, five months is given, or what the distinction is there. It's just possible that That's just a time that God allows for all this to happen. Uh, Let me finish this up in verse 13 through 19. The six angels sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the six angels who had the trumpets, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and date and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horse and riders I saw in my vision look like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow. And he goes on to describe everything that they have. But verse 19, the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, where their tails were like snakes, having head, heads with which they inflict injury. This is the portion where it's not just he's impacting the planet. This is where he's implac- impacting people. And some people believe that even though it doesn't say that those, it says those four angels were bound at the great river Euphrates. Some people believe that those also are demons that God has been holding at bay. Some people believe they are angels who are just obeying God. And when they are released, a third of mankind is, remember we talked about a quarter of mankind before already being killed. Now a third of mankind is destroyed. And the worst part of all this, the worst part of all this is that what it says, what I just read to you in, in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, that the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues didn't repent of the work of their hands. They didn't stop worshipping demons, even though he showed them that those demons were subject to him. They didn't stop worshipping idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols they cannot see or hear or walk. They didn't repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And here's the thing, they didn't repent of, this is the way that, this is the way that we were treating each other. It doesn't even necessarily impact our relationship to God, although it does with idols, but people continue to murder people. God is is, is shaking the very nature of existence to say, I'm here and I love you. And people go on murdering one another. God is shaking uh, the heavens and the stars themselves, and yet people are going on and dealing in witchcraft. And here's the thing, and I'm not going to get into this in big detail, but where it says they're magic arts, do you know what that word is in the Greek? It's the word pharmakia. It's where we get our word pharmaceuticals. It not only has to do with people that deal in witchcraft and magic, but also has to deal with drugs, because at that time, what people would do is they would take drugs in order to gain a heightened spiritual experience they were using it to try to find some level of spiritual enlightenment. And even though in this day that's not exactly what they use it for, though there, there are plenty of people that still use it for that, God is literally saying, "I'm I'm I'm literally shaking the ground you walk on to show you how much I care about you." And you would rather chase demons Bow down before or stones that you made from rocks that I created, or sit in a corner and get high instead of acknowledging my presence. You'd rather kill someone or steal from someone than experience the power of the God. And it's, it's not like today where people say, if God would show me that He was real then maybe I believe. This is God touching and showing every fabric of our existence when all this occurs, and people still saying, I don't think so. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and uh, as they do, I'm going to ask the ushers to come up, because uh, this book, the entire book, is about us looking forward to what God has in store. It's about us looking forward to God unveiling. That's what revelation means, unveiling his will to us. And we're going to partake in communion. So I'm going to ask uh, Gary to come forward. Because the whole act of communion is about us looking back at what God has done for us. It's about us taking uh, uh, something that is extremely intimate on a spiritual level. And I've, I've said this before, that... Uh, tithing, yes, but communion, one of the most intimate things that we can do, because it's literally God giving his body, Jesus Christ saying, I'm giving my body to you, and as you know, when you give your body to someone else, it's an act of intimacy. So what I'm going to ask us to do is, is as we, uh, and if you haven't done communion in this way, we may do it a little bit different than what you're used to, it still has the same level of significance, because on the day before he was crucified, Jesus Christ sat with his disciples and he said, you know what? Um, this is my body. As he broke bread with them, he said, this is my body. And he said, whenever you take of it, do this in remembrance of me. My body that was broken for you. And then he, as he shared a glass of wine with them, and they did a little bit differently than what we we're accustomed to. They didn't pass the cup and sip from it, but as they would take the glass of wine, they would rip off the piece of bread and they would dip it into the wine. And he said, whenever you partake of this wine, he said, I won't share it with you again until we're all together in heaven, but whenever you partake of it, remember that I gave my blood for you. I sacrificed my life for you. And when we take communion, that's what we look back on. And when we read Revelation, we look forward to God saying, not only did I I sacrifice my life for you, break my body for you, give my blood for you, but I will shake the very heavens themselves just for you. So I'm going to ask as as, as you feel led, and maybe if you're in a place where you're feeling like, you know what, I'm not in that right place with God, and I don't want to engage in communion, feel free to, you know, stay where you are. But if you are in that place, and God is calling you, and you're in a place where you say, you know what, I, I cannot help but acknowledge all that God has done for me. Then after I pray, I'm going to ask you to just come up from your seats. This is the way we do it. Just come up from your seats, and we want to partake in communion with you. So, God, we are extremely grateful for just everything that you have done for us, that you're willing to do for us. The very fact that you look at us, and you don't see our hurts and our pains. You don't see all the bad things we've done. You don't see the mistakes that we're even going to continue to make. Some maybe is on our way out of this building but you see people who you love with a vibrant unconditional love that you were willing to as your word says give your body for broken for us and shed your blood for shed for us and shake the very heavens themselves for us and we pray this in Jesus name amen